Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and on this episode of the podcast, I have the one, the only, the incredible Corey Woltering. The world needs a whole heck of a lot more of people like Corey. Corey recently completed his first foray into the adventure racing realm, being a part of the first all African American team to compete in the Eco Challenge, Team Onyx. You can find the coverage for that race right now on Amazon Prime. And in addition to that, Corey recently completed a fastest known time on the Ice Age Trail. We talk about his preparation going into both of those events, some of which went to plan and some of which did not go to plan. We talk about what those races have meant to him and what he has learned from them. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Corey Wolterey. At this point, have you finished the whole Eco Challenge series watching it once or twice or three times or four times? Like how many times have you run through this yet? Uh, probably about four. Seriously? So, I mean, I watched, yeah, I watched pretty much all of the episodes as soon as they came out, um, on like that Thursday night when they leaked it a little bit early. And then I watched it again, um, on that Friday. How did you find that experience? Uh, it's definitely interesting watching it on TV when you're not there because it's, It's kind of weird to see yourself on Amazon Prime to begin with. But then, like, just seeing what the different teams went through and, like, how far a team, how far ahead some teams were compared to uh, some of the slower teams, it's like the conditions change so quickly there that it's like multiple different races are going on. So I guess for me, it was just kind of the inside of like what some of the front teams went through compared to what some of the back teams went through. Um, but it was, it's awesome to watch. And I mean, it sounds like you didn't have like any scope of that before you actually started watching it. Like what was actually going on in the field? Like unlike an ultra marathon where you can sit around and like powwow with people afterwards and you can kind of get a sense out of it. Like you're looking at this going, is this the same race? Totally. Um, yeah. So it's like you have teams that finished extremely quick and then you have teams that it took, you know, all 11 days. And so because of that, um, like after the race, I guess people are finishing it just at different rates where it's like some people are going to hotels to relax. Some people just quit and flew home. And so there's just a wide variety of the different experiences, uh, post race. So, uh, we, I really, I didn't even know who won, um, until I watched, uh, the actual race. And you guys were all like the whole field was essentially under a gag order from the time that you finished basically to the time that it came out. Correct. Yes. So you could, could you even like kind of talk? Yeah. yeah, It's almost a year. I want to kind of go back to that, that year in a little bit, but you couldn't even like talk a lot amongst yourselves to start to piece some of the stories together. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's the really hard part about it. Cause like, it's like we were there, but I, I didn't know what happened. Wow. That's so incredible. So it's like, it's, I mean, this is like literally reliving an experience of which you still needed further context for when you were watching it on, on, on Amazon prime. Yeah. So like when I first watched it, I was actually like texting a couple different people. And I'm like, did you know that this happened? Like, how did we not know this? Like, yeah. Like we, we don't, we, we were there, but we didn't see it. So we didn't really know. The, how did you, how do you feel that the ultimate, um, the ultimate TV broadcast like portrayed the teams and then like the personalities within the teams as well? Cause you know, at the end of the day, this is, it's a TV show, right? And a lot of these reality style TV shows, they kind of get a notorious rap for just exploiting the things that are entertaining and sometimes at the expense of like the characters, in this case, the athletes. Like, how do you feel that that portrayal actually happened from reality to TV? I think they did very well with it this year. Um, I know that there have been some in the past that, um, 
they showed a lot more of like the fighting that goes on between the teams and um, just different things like that. Whereas this time they really didn't show too much of that. And that is probably a good thing. I mean, they, they had a lot of incredible stories to tell throughout all 10 episodes. So I guess they just felt like they really didn't need to show all that. And people would find it to be interesting anyway, which I think it was. So What's the feedback that like you've personally gotten from it? Because I know you watch it and you're a public personality. You've been, you know, on social media and stuff like that. And you've done and you've done some pretty cool things in between you actually doing Eco Challenge and it being aired that have kind of like um that 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 have also been good for your public profile. So what what have you like received in terms of feedback from just the people that are watching this? Um, you know, 98% of it is great. Um, a lot of people reaching out being like, Hey, you know, thank you for being out there. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for not being afraid to be the openly gay black man that's out there just running around the woods in a speedo and, you know, just being you. Um, and so that has been awesome. And a lot of people have been reaching out saying just also like, thank you for inspiring us to get out and go hike or to ride a bike or check out a new trail. Um, because like team Onyx, that was one of our big goals is basically to just encourage people of color to want to go out, be active, maybe try a different sport that they haven't done or something that they've always wanted to do and just haven't done. Um, so it's been great to get a lot of feedback like that. But then, you know, there's always going to be people that have something to say and feel like they need to put it in your inbox or write it on your wall or whatever. And um, there's there's been quite a bit of negative stuff coming in. Like I get at least one message a day um, from somebody out there that's like, oh, I know that you're a great athlete, but what does being black have to do with it? Or you're a great athlete, but what does being gay have to do with it? And then my favorite was uh, the one that they called out Team Onyx for being racist because we didn't allow white people to be on our team. And I was like, honestly, like this is where we're going with this right now. I'm like, okay. Um, So yeah, there's definitely a wide variety of stuff. Do you even respond to that or you just be like, Oh, what about what a freaking idiot like i don't have the time to I, I shouldn't even waste my time with this it depends um <laughs> for some people i just i'm just like whatever i really don't care and then there are some that it's just so ridiculous that i feel the need to actually respond to them um and it's actually quite funny so i had an exchange with someone on instagram like three weeks ago now about three weeks and basically he called team onyx out for being racist and he's like i don't have a problem with you being black i don't have a problem with you being gay but uh he's like if you know if we had a all white team should it be called like team cotton and blah 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 and all this stuff i'm just like oh my god like honestly i was like and then he he ends his message with I was married to a Nubian princess for 20 years, but now uh, I have a half black son. So my black card is still active. And it's like, Oh my God. But I couldn't let that one go. So, (laughs) so so I just, I explained to him like, Hey, you know, like the reason team Onyx is here is because yes, we did want to be the first all African American team to race an eco challenge or an expedition length adventure race. And like, this is why it's important and laid out all those steps for him. And then I was just like, and you might want to like watch your wording a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know, like whatever. So I didn't hear anything. And then he responds like five days later and he's like, are we not allowed to speak our mind anymore in America? Like, what is this country coming to? And like went on some rant about that. And I was like, you are more than welcome to speak your mind. But if you don't have anything nice to say or anything constructive to say, then maybe you should keep it to yourself. And is like, but if you have anything else you'd like to tell me, I will sit here and I will listen to this and maybe you'll get somewhere. And he doesn't respond. And then like a week later, he's like, well, actually, here's my story. And it's like, okay, I at least appreciated the fact that he was willing to like give me some context from where he's coming from. He's like, yeah, I'm just like a poor white dude from the South. Like, I'm just trying to do the best I can, blah, blah, blah. He's like, but if everybody would meet me with kindness and compassion, like you did in your responses, then he's like, maybe, you know, the world would be a better place. And I was thinking, Yes, it probably would be, but 
you shouldn't be going on these rants in the first place. So, <laughs> uh, well, at least some good could come of it, right? Yeah. And so, like, every once in a while, there's that stuff that happens. And I'm like, I don't know. I, uh, I just feel the need to call people out now sometimes because, you know, um, one thing people say about getting into the outdoors, like a lot of people of color have said, you know, I just, I didn't feel comfortable because I didn't see someone that looked like me or they've gotten messages before. And so I just wanted to highlight that, like, this is actually real. Like people do get messages and people don't always feel safe. And I'm just happy that I'm getting these messages rather than somebody else because it, it doesn't scare me. Like it doesn't bother me. I'm just like, okay, whatever. As a team, I mean, you guys definitely went into this to like raise some awareness having an all African-American team. Did you all discuss that internally as a team and say, hey, listen, this is going to be some realistic controversy, blowback, negative feedback or whatever, and here's how we're going to handle it. Did you discuss that in advance amongst your team or amongst the producers or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like we knew what we were getting ourselves into and we we're totally fine with that. Um, the producers loved it. Um, and honestly, like most of my teammates aren't getting all of the other <laughs> messages and it's stuff. Just like you. a lot of people are coming <laughs> straight for me and I'm like, that is totally fine. Um, but like, they'll also hop into the discussion though on like Instagram or whatever. And they see something, they're just like, we're not going to let this one sit here, you know? And it's like, oh, it's, it is what it is, but whatever. I mean, if you're not pissing people off, then are you really living? Yeah. You know, like I've, I've always looked at these things and I knew, I knew when you set this up, when you originally went into it, I'm like, okay, there, there's going to be some, you know, some sort of outcome of this, but it like with the airing and the timing of the airing and the state of racial relations in the country just created this really, it, it's like an enhanced storm of stuff that you would have to deal with anyway. You know, if this would have aired three years ago, you know, without all of the racial controversy or at least less of the racial controversy, there'll still be some of it. But now it's just like amplified so much because of the situation. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> so uh, that's it is what it is. I mean, you know, we, we set out to do what we wanted to do and we, I think we did it well. So are, 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 I always want to know after these things, are all of you still friends afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which a lot of teams cannot say the same, uh, especially from Fiji. Um, <laughs> that, that, uh, <laughs> the race took a toll on a lot of friendships in Fiji. And so if you finished as friends, then that was already a win. Or even if you didn't finish the race, but you're still friends after that is a huge win um, on that course. Oh, I, 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 I probably know uh, 10 or 12 people that were out there every including you and you fit this profile as well that I'm about to describe Every single one of them afterwards was fucked. Like there was something wrong. Uh -huh. They broke a bone. They broke a few bones. They have some sort of, you know, intestinal disease. Like just like every single person after they got off the island and got back to the States, they couldn't tell you like what happened during the race, obviously, because of the gag order and whatnot. But physically, they were annihilated. Yeah. Um, it <laughs> I don't, I just, I don't know. Like, I understand that it's a jungle, but like, they don't have poisonous snakes. They don't have poisonous spiders. Like, insects aren't really that bad there. But these plants and just the mud and like the cow shit that drains into the rivers that you're on these paddle boards and, and stuff, like, it messes you up. And so, like, Honestly, breaking a bone is probably the better way to go than some of these <laughs> intestinal things that were happening. You're just, picking ugh. the lesser of two evils there. Um, yeah, like, okay. you just you kind of had to. Let, let's rewind a little bit because I think this is like good. This is good for the listeners. Um, so you actually did the eco challenge was actually done the race itself from win to win last year. Uh, September of 2019. So like the second week of September through the 20 something. Okay. So about a year ago when this podcast comes out is about, about, about a year ago. Um, you got the call for that. When? <laughs> uh, January. January. Um, 
Yeah, an Instagram message from our team captain, Clifton. And he's basically like, hey, I'm trying to put together the first all-African-American team to race an eco-challenge. Would you be interested in it? Oh, by the way, it's in Fiji. So... Like I got on Google and was like, where is Fiji? And then (laughs) once I figured out where that was, I was like, oh, look at these really nice white sand beaches and blue water. Like I would absolutely love to do that. And so uh, we put together our application. He found all of our teammates through Instagram. And then uh, last like February, I guess, we found out that we were in And then uh, the dread started to set set in as I realized I had a lot of new skills to learn. (laughs) That's what I wanted to get into. So you went into this going, oh, sweet. I get to do some sort of ultra distance race in Fiji. It looks like a cool area. Not having hardly any clue what uh, what even an adventure race was comprised of. Yeah. I mean, the last time I watched an eco challenge, I was what, like 18 years old or something. And at that time you're just like, Oh, that looks like it's pretty awful, but cool. Like I wasn't even an endurance athlete at that point. So like for me, I'm just like, whatever, great TV. Okay. So but, let, let's start to unravel yeah. this a little bit. Cause you're a runner, you have a triathlon background. So you have, and you obviously have a good endurance background and you're a good athlete, but Adventure racing is a completely different kettle of fish where there's all of these other what what a lot of people would refer to as like mountain skills that go into mm-hmm. the the event itself. How did you start to unravel like how cuz you didn't have any knowledge of it. How did you start to unravel all of those and let's kind of like walk through what we did as like coach and athlete to get you <laughs> like to complete this adventure <laughs> racing crash course that you took. Yeah. Um, well, you know, my current training ground of Ottawa, Illinois is so mountainous that I can practice <laughs> all of my mountain skills here. So, um, yeah, that was, that was the first step I think was just trying to figure out where I needed to go for these different certifications you need to have. Um, and so like one of the things was rock climbing and ropes. One was whitewater and swift water river rescue. Um, you also had to be able to swim up to like a class 2.5 rapid. Um, you had, what else do we have? We had sailing, uh, wilderness first aid and CPR, So, um, yeah, once again, not a lot of those things around here. So, uh, we, (laughs) we made it work. Started out with, um, just ultra training, I guess, and added in a little bit of just like core body work type stuff. And then I guess it it wouldn't have been until July of last year that we're like, all right, instead of just running, like you need to actually get on the mountain bike. (laughs) You need to go get on these ropes courses. You need to get out and go kayak or canoe or stand up paddleboard. And, uh, it worked. I mean, I got to the start line. (laughs) The the way that I, the way, because a couple of people have asked me about this since then, the way that I've described it is, is you had this impeccable endurance training base and then you took these very specific and narrow crash courses on the skill side of everything. So the rock climbing skills and the rope skills and then the water skills and then some of the navigation skills. But they were uh, – you you can – I want you to describe it the, w- the way that you would think, think of it. But from a coaching standpoint, I was looking at those as very like rudimentary crash courses. Let's just get Corey over the bar so he's – minimally competent in these activities. Absolutely. That's a great way of looking at it. And I think that that is correct. Um, Because yeah, like I have the engine to do it and I don't require a lot of sleep. And so that's a great thing for adventure racing. But if you want me to be the primary navigator, like we are fucked. So (laughs) like, there we go. Did it ever Uh, come down to that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, it did not come down to that. Thank God, because, uh, it would have been a nightmare. Um, and so like, but even, even most of the teams that you still had to have like some sort of like jungle navigation type thing, which is basically an online class you can take. I'm like, I don't care if I stare at my iPad all day. Like once you get out into the woods, that jungle navigation is completely different. 
Yeah, it's definitely uh, you have to learn in the field. Like there's the the practical classroom application of those t- of that specific skill is not going to take you very far as you now have experienced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay, so you took a crash course and all this stuff, but still, you really don't know what you're getting into until you actually get there. That's part of the thing with the ego challenge is this this big this big curtain, and then they peel it back. Once you get to whatever section that you're actually getting to, what was that like? Like, what was like the unknown piece of it like? Like knowing that you're absolutely right. You're a great athlete. Like you're a great cardiovascular athlete. You have a great base of training and things like that. But still, you're going to ask yourself to do things that you don't know what's coming up. You might not know how to solve that problem. Like, what was that whole thing like in real time? Yeah. Um, so the great news is Cliff and Chris have both raced, um, expedition length adventure races before. So they, uh, they liked to tell us a little bit about what we might have happened on the course, but you can't actually know for sure. So like, we just kind of had this general idea of like, okay. So like when they, let us see like the first section of course or whatever. And they're like, all right, now we're going to be going out to the comic cows and we're going to be sailing. I was just like, yep. Here we <laughs> <Sailing>. go. <laughs> yeah, like we, we had a, they gave each team a, like basically a one hour lesson on how to sail a comic cow um, before the race started. And so you had like three different stations you're at for 20 minutes each. And it's the first time most of us are seeing these things. Yeah. What's a comic cow, by the way, you're gonna have to describe what that is for some of the listeners. It's like a, basically a canoe that can hold four people and it has two arms on it and like a base. And basically, um, you should be able to sail them pretty much anywhere um, in the ocean. But to start this race, you have a 10 kilometer paddle uh, to get out to the ocean. So you're basically starting out with river navigation and then you're going to go to op- uh, ocean navigation. And it's like, okay, um, they, they're like, we're, this will be fine. Like everyone's going to hit 10 kilometers and then you pass us like a bigger boat. And then it's like, yay, open ocean. Here we go. There is no wind. <laughs> so, uh, after 10 kilometers of paddling to get to where we should be able to put up the sail, uh, most teams chose not to put up the sail because there's just no wind. So all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this is already the first problem of the race. Like there's no end. So now when we have 30 kilometers to go, like, are we still going to paddle this or are we going to hopefully like look for some wind out there or what? And like, Oh my God, it was just miserable. Um, and so, yeah, that's a great way to start out, you know, be like four hours into this and you're already miserable. Um, <laughs> and but, what, what was your, what was your boating experience prior to that? Uh, I had been on a sailboat before on a lake. <laughs> um, so, that's it. Yeah, that's like, it. That's like your previous, I mean, you're a good swimmer, obviously triathlon background, right? But yeah. boating experience, none. Like, no, like I'd been in canoes, like single person canoes and kayaks and that stuff. Well, I guess single person kayaks and two person canoes, but never something where it's like four people and it has this massive sail on it and you're out on open ocean. (laughs) Okay. So you get out there in the open ocean, you're trying to decide how to get to where you're going 30 kilometers down there. And you guys just decided to paddle. Yeah. That's what every team was deciding to do just because the, the wind was not beneficial. And so it's just really funny because the race is hoping that, you know, there'd be like a dramatic um, like start to the race or everyone's paddling, which the start was dramatic. You saw like four teams flip over in the first 30 seconds of right. the race. Um, so like that was dramatic. But then once you get past this boat, you should see a bunch of sails up and it should make like really pretty views and like really dramatic opening and really cool. And instead you just see a bunch of people paddling. And <laughs> so, so it didn't quite work out how they had hoped it would. Um, but yeah, just, it took a long time. Which is hard, but just, it doesn't make for good TV. 
Uh, like it just it really doesn't make for that good of tv and like it's just it's already hard and then you're just like all right like because i think that first section is maybe 80 kilometers total of paddling or maybe a little bit more um and so like it was just like come on like when does this ever end that's so much man okay so you took all of these like rudimentary crash courses in these various hodgepodge adventure racing skill set how well do you think that that actually prepared you for the event? Um, I think that they were all very beneficial to have and definitely it helped quite a bit, but, uh, in true like Fiji fashion, I probably should have spent a lot more time on the water and, uh, not necessarily so much on land. Um, just because like, if things are going well and you can pa- and you don't have to paddle and you can actually sail, then like the first two days of this race go by so much quicker. But instead, you know, you spend like 18 hours a day just paddling for the first two days. And that's just a lot of paddling. What, what about from like a, like an, like any other, is there anything that during the race you either got to or having watched the race later, you would have kind of gotten to, and we're going to get how the whole thing unfolded uh, in a little bit where you can kind of like look back and go, ah, man, like I really wish I would have done that. Like I had no idea that that was going to happen. Um, you know, I think that most of the stuff in the race we knew would happen at some point. Um, I do honestly, I wish that we would have been able to, uh, do the big waterfall climb. Um, just because my rope skills were very, uh, were very solid at that time. So I was like, I was going to be most proud of that. I think just to be like, I did that. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, I think that overall it kind of went well. There are just a couple things that happened that weren't on camera that ended up just being why we were so far back there. Um, but, other than I mean, I honestly think we'd have been in the top 30 for most of the race. I was going to ask you this. You can feel free to, to not get into it and we'll cut it out of the podcast. But what didn't get shown on TV that you wish would have gotten shown on TV for whatever reason? Mm-hmm. Either you were doing awesome or it was just some complete like debacle, like peel the curtain back a little bit on, on something that that might have not made the or that get left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, so um, on our way back from the smaller island, um, like we'd already done the first like 30 kilometers of sailing or whatever, then we did the 20-kilometer trek um, and then had to sail back. And you could either choose to sleep that night and then leave in the morning, or if you felt confident enough, you could go out for, you know, uh, like a 30 or 40-kilometer ocean sail at night And, uh, as a team, we chose to go out at night, um, which I was just like, great, you know, when else am I ever going to be saying that I'm like sailing in the South Pacific at night? So like, that's pretty awesome. Um, but it's also like, do we have the skills to be navigating an ocean (laughs) at night? Like, it's like, I trust my teammates, but I was just like, okay, like we're making some bold choices here and I can, I can respect that though. Um, So anyway, everything is pretty decent and we're navigating this well at night and we're getting probably within about five kilometers of where we needed to dive down for the first medallion and just through whatever reason. So like there's that little platform that's out in between like the two arms and we were taking turns just kind of like laying out on that stretching for a second, just not being in the cramped position of paddling for hours because we were actually kind of sailing at this point. So I was out there on that platform and whatever happened, we're still not exactly sure what it was, um, but the, the arm broke off of the boat and it threw me into the ocean. So here I am just like out in the ocean. One of the arms broke off. There's like this elastic strap that was holding the two pieces connecting on. And it was just one of those things where like, nobody saw this coming. So just a complete surprise for me. Like I'm laying there one minute, next thing you know, I just see myself up in the air and then out into the water. I'm like, okay, this is totally fine. Chris is not freaking out about it at all. Cause he's like, you know how to swim. You're good. You're calm. And so like, sure, totally fine. But now we have a problem because our boat is broken 
in the water. And it's like, we either need to get that arm off, like completely off, or because uh, it was still attached on one side, or I had to find that elastic strap and try to put it back on and hope that it'd work. But it's like, who knows what's going to happen. But the big thing is we needed to get the sail down because now it's an unstable boat. So with the wind that was happening, plus the waves that were happening, I actually did find the elastic strap and was getting ready to put it back on, but we just couldn't get the sail down fast enough. So it ended up flipping our boat in the ocean. Like all four of us are in the water now. Um, our gear is still like, so <laughs> we're all in the water. Our gear is still strapped under the boat. Um, and we're like, all right, like this is actually a, decently big problem at this point so um chris dives under and finds an air pocket and was able to figure out um what um what pack had like the emergency flares and the radio and all that stuff in it um but basically if you use your emergency flares or you need to use your radio then you are usually disqualified from the race but like we were out in the ocean, at least at this point, we had just been drifting. So now we had, we're probably about four miles away from where we needed to go. And it was just like, this is bad. So we shoot off the first emergency flare and just nothing like nobody sees anything. Um, we don't see any of the race helicopters around. There's like nothing. So we're like, OK, this is fine. So then we get the radio out and we try to radio back to HQ and we just have no signal, like j just no answer from them, like nothing. So we are like, all right, we, we have a decision to make here and there's really nothing you can do except for use your final flare and just hope that someone sees it. But with our sail already being like also in the water, like you you just, you have to hope that someone sees it. So we use our final flare. Um, the race still didn't see it. And so now we're like, okay, we're just out here in the middle of nowhere and this is not good, but there's apparently a Fijian fisherman that was out in the water somewhere. And he saw the first flare and he's like, he just thought people are joking around. So he didn't do anything, but then he saw the second flare go off. So he figured that people were in trouble and was like, I'm going to go see what's going on. So he pulls up in his fishing boat as our Kamakau is just like submerged. And he's like, oh, he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, well, <laughs> we <were tr> <laughs> that's a great question. We were trying to sail, but that doesn't seem, seem to be working. But we're like, we're part of this race and we need to be over there. And he's like, I'm not trying to freak you guys out, but you're in shark infested water. So you need to get out of the water and get on my boat. And that's her like, hmm. like, do we get on the boat? Do we not get on the boat? But then we're like, well, the race isn't here. So, uh, so I'm like, yeah, we'll get on the boat. And he's like, it's fine. I was just making a pot of coffee. Like I'll have some warm coffee for you guys. Like, it's like, I'll take you over to the Island where you need to be. And we're like, oh my goodness, like get all of our gear. Um, and we're basically like, we just need to leave this boat here, I guess. Like there's not really anything else we can do. So we're on the way back to the island and the race HQ still had like a GPS tracker on all of the boats. And uh, they finally realized that we were like not anywhere near where we needed to be at this point. So they're looking for us. They send out two boats to look for us as we're on a fishing boat heading the other direction and we were able to like finally wave them down, get them. And they brought us to the Island where we needed to be. They went out, they rescued our boat and then they determined that it was like an actual like equipment malfunction. And so because of that, they had to bring, they brought out a second boat to us and it let us continue on um, in the race. But we lost about seven hours from this. Jesus. So, yeah. So it goes from like, you know, we were decently high up there and we were doing well um, to then losing seven hours uh, throughout this whole thing. The craziest thing about that is the, the random fisherman that comes along. is like, what are you guys doing here? 
yeah like it we honestly couldn't believe it and he's just like what are you guys doing and it's like i don't know like we we don't want to be like right here now either so yeah <laughs> like what are we doing but here? just explaining just, lo- just explaining the concept of an adventure race to some random fisherman in fiji like you might as well have been an alien Totally. Absolutely. And it was pretty funny. And like, we love to look back and laugh on this whole experience um, just because like it was funny, but like seven hours is a long time. Like that's a good chunk of daylight right there that we just lost. I'm glad I'm glad that we got to tell that story that, that got left on the cutting room floor because there are no cameras around you, obviously, to uh, to 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 document it. <laughs> Totally. And so our boat had a GoPro on it, but I don't know if the GoPro is lost as the boat boat went under or what, but I'm like, I really hope that somebody finds that GoPro someday um, and is just like looking (laughs) through the footage of this and is like, what the hell is this? (laughs) What are these people doing? That's hilarious. Okay. Well, let's not, I, I, I I was thinking about getting into the kind of what happened at the end of the day with your team, but yeah. Let's leave that for the listeners to actually go to Amazon Prime and view the whole race because I thought it was extremely well documented and it was very well put together. It 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 blends the athletic side with the entertainment side as well. I mean, this is an actual race with real athletes doing it and it's not just elite athletes, it's everyday athletes and things like that. I thought all those elements came together quite well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it did. Like I'm, I'm very happy with how it turned out and I, I know that they are thrilled with how it turned out. Okay. So we'll direct everybody over to Amazon prime. And do you know how long it's going to be on there for? I have no idea. Oh, so get there soon. <laughs> and a good, yep. a good reason to sign up for Amazon prime. If you're not already an Amazon prime member, um, let's switch to the ice age trail and yeah. the, the, chronological sequence of this is you get into eco challenge you do eco challenge covid hits you do the ice age trail and then the show the tv show the eco challenge tv show comes out yes so it's kind of a like it's just a weird it's just a kind of a weird orientation that i wanted everybody to get used to so before we get into the ice age trail itself <clears throat> which is really well documented as well I want to kind of go into how that unfolded because you, like a lot of other athletes have kind of had this like, Oh God, what am I trying to do with this year? And it went through a lot of like fits and starts at the very beginning and almost like the eco challenge unfolded in a really quick and haphazard almost manner. So let's back up almost to like black Canyon, right? So what was the original intent of, of 2020 for you as, as you were going through it? Yeah. Uh, so 2020, um, I was basically hoping to race black Canyon and get a golden ticket into Western States and then race States. And I don't know anything else later in the year, but basically (laughs) those are kind of like the two bigger things. But um, that uh, did not happen like I thought it would. Um, Black Canyon ended up being a very disappointing day, um, which I still do. I look back on it quite a bit and I kind of laugh because I've only finished one of like five 100 Ks that I've ever started. Um, So that just, it kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Um, But yeah, so black canyon and then it was like well i have all this fitness so like what am i supposed to do and what did we sign up for next uh way too cool mm-hmm. um and basically went there and was like i don't have leg speed to race a really fast 50k right now but uh i will go out and enjoy it and had a good race there and then it was basically like i got back from way too cool and COVID was starting to shut everything down. Um, so I still squeezed in the marathon at land between the lakes in Kentucky. And then like, that was the last thing that was on the schedule for a long time. So, um, you know, I just, I was bored at home and 
basically is like, all right, I'm going to run every street of Ottawa, Illinois, starting on April 1st um, and did 205 miles over 12 days and raised $13,000 for small businesses in Ottawa. So that was really fun and gave me a reason to actually get out there and run. Um, And well, one of the big things about that was they had shut down all of the trail systems in Illinois. So like my only option for running was running on the road or not running. Um, And so I was like, well, I guess I'll just, I'll run every street. Why not? Um, But then I finished that. The trails still aren't open. And I'm like, what am I going to do with my late spring and early summer if nothing is open and there's nothing to do? So I was like, let's go after an FKT. And I think we texted back and forth on this a lot about like, how far do we want to go? Like, will there be races later this summer or do we want to, you know, just go all the way and not really think about racing uh, later this summer or fall? So, um, I don't know, (laughs) like somehow we decided on ice age, um, after thinking about it for like a week, uh, it just kind of became the thing to do, I guess. Um, there's more to it (laughs) Well, hold on, wait a minute. No, but there's actually not that much more to it than that because the time frame. this is what I want to kind of get out of this. The time frame between when you finished every single street and when you decided to run the Ice Age Trail was only several weeks. It's not like you had this big, grandiose, okay, let's start working towards this since March. I think we can go back and look at our text messages. It was probably maybe six, five or six weeks between, I think maybe even shorter than that, <laughs> between I'm going to do this and the, and the actual start date. And <clears throat> yeah, from a training perspective, I remember having this conversation with you and just trying to communicate that you're going to rely on your entire experience as an endurance athlete, not necessarily the last three weeks. So let's get all the logistics wrapped up. And if you have to take training off the table to like get everything buttoned up, get the sponsors all on board, you know, do get your crew and everything like that. Great. That's a great use of your time. Let's not cram in miles because you had this you had this kind of like base built up essentially from every single street, every single street. Yeah. Um, I think it was, I think we decided maybe four weeks before that we were actually going to go through with it. And then I contacted my crew about like three weeks before. And I'm like, Hey, what are you guys doing uh, in June? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, no, I'm not talking about just like one day in June. I'm talking like, what are you doing for three weeks of June? Um, which it wasn't hard to convince them to do it. So that was great. But yeah, like it was, I don't know. Some of those things where it's like, I had thought about doing it probably years from now. Um, but this is the perfect time to do it. I want to get some of your reactions to these stats. So first off, I'll, what, how long is the ice age trail? Cause there are going to be some people that are, that are listening to this, that, that kind of don't have a concept for how long it actually is. Yeah. It's about 1,147 miles of trail. Well, it's road and trail. So you have, I want to say that you have probably about 550 miles of trail and 550 miles of road somewhere in there. And you did it in how many days? 21 days, 13 hours and 35 minutes. Okay. So I'm going to break the math down for the people out there that can't do basic division in their heads. And that includes me. <clears throat> and actually when I saw all the files start to come through, it started like this, actually the reality of how, of how big this was actually hit me to a much greater degree as well. So week number one was 344 miles and 83 hours and 40 minutes of running. Week number two was 300 miles and 87 uh, hours of running and week week number four, the last or sorry, week number three, the last week was four hundred and seventy one miles and exactly one hundred hours of running. So it's a three hundred and forty four mile week, a three hundred mile week, and a four hundred and seventy one mile week, all of which is like over a month of training. Each one of those weeks. Yep. And you did it all yeah. in three consecutive weeks. And my point with that is is Like when you went into it, you can do all the math, right? You know how long it is. You know how many days it's going to take. 
But the fact that you were doing so much more running than you had ever done in your life, you're literally doing five or six weeks of running in one week. Like, did any of that hit you before you sat out on this adventure? Not really. (laughs) Like, that's probably the best part about it, though. Like, I just went into it like, okay, like, I just need to run between 50 miles and 60 miles a day, and this will be fine. And so, like, I didn't even think about it like that. I'm just like, I get to do an ultra tomorrow, then I get to do one the next day, and there you go. Um, But, like, I don't think I really thought about the number of hours it would actually be when it came to uh, just the weekly totals and stuff. And I, I don't think I actually looked until the end of the first week and like, oh, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> See, that's this is what I've always told people. It's like, what what are you attaching to your weekly training volume? Like, what sort of psychology are you attaching to that? Because... If you, it, I, I guarantee you, and this was not intentional, I think by either one of us, but I think it ended up being a good strategy. So we get bonus points for being lucky. The fact that we didn't go over that and put that in the, in these yeah. contexts, like the fact that, yeah, you're going to do six weeks worth of running in one week, like, because everything came together so quickly and it almost didn't allow for the opportunity for you to kind of like get in your own head and start to forecast too much. You were just like, just like you said, okay, I get to go run an ultra today. And then tomorrow I get to go run an ultra. And then the next day I get to go run an ultra. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, Cause like, well, I had originally said that like I was hoping for maybe about 12 hours a day was like about yeah. what I wanted to be out there. Um, but even though I said 12 hours a day, I still don't think I even um, thought about like Monday being 12 hours and Tuesday being 12 hours and just stacking them on top of each other. I think I just went in like, okay, it's just 12 hours. So, And, and yet it didn't really, it wasn't unfolding too well at the very beginning. No, like it never was really unfolding that well, I don't think. Um, <laughs> well, but, I don't know. I mean, it started to at the end, but the beginning, I mean, it, it was not, you've recollected this in, in, in a few areas, but it, it definitely did not go to plan. Fair statement, right? Mm-mm. At any point yep. in time, were you looking at that going, oh, God, like I just can't get done. I don't have enough. I don't have enough time to do the remaining miles because you were so far behind. I mean, you were... Yeah, forty miles behind at some point at at the, at the most. Yeah, yeah, about on day like fourteen or fifteen, I think. Um, so that's quite a ways into it. But honestly, no. Um, it basically came down to I just knew that I could sleep less and move more and still get it done. Um, so like I was willing to just basically not sleep if that's what it came down to. Um, and we had talked about it early on where it's like sleep as much as you can in that first week, stay rested, just get through the first week to 10 days. And then after that, things are going to start to fall apart maybe a little bit. And that's when you're going to have to make the decision on sleep or not. Um, I was having to make that decision quite a bit earlier um, because I mean, the first day I think I did like 55 miles or something on day one. And I'm like, great. I'm already up on record pace. It's all good. Day two was just the giant meltdown with the ticks. And I only covered 28 miles on day two. And so all of a sudden I'm like, well, there's like 25 to 30 miles that I just did not cover that I needed to cover. Um, And so all of a sudden it's like, well, now we have work to do. Like we are already behind and it's only the second day. Um, But then through the first I think by day five, I was back on top. Um, and by day nine, I I think I was like 20 miles up on day nine. Um, and so like actually was having a good day um, or a good stretch, even though at that point my ankle was just so messed up, but still having a decent amount of mileage. And then just over the next few days, like things just massively fell apart. Um, and so I go from being like 20 miles up to like 40 miles down. Yeah. So when you're comparing yourself to the current record out there, you basically had two parts of this roller coaster. The first part happened almost immediately with the ticks, ticks invade. Like you were, you were, I mean, you were seriously falling behind because every, you know, hundred feet or whatever, you had to pick 20 ticks off of you, but then you rolled your ankle and you kind of like fell behind significantly. I was going to say a little bit, but that's not true. You fell behind significantly because you're back up on record pace. 
you fell down, you fell back significantly because of all the complications with the ankle and the train and stuff like that. Like, but what I'm getting from you is, is like, you were just saying, oh, I'm just not going to sleep as much. Like, that's kind of what it was yeah. coming down to. Yeah. And like, it, it was one of those things where being behind on record pace didn't actually like ever stress me out. Um, Cause I also knew that we had a lot of flat running that would come towards the end of this. So I was like, if you can just survive the first two weeks of this, like your third week will be much better. Or at least that's what I kept telling myself. Um, and so like, for me, it was like, all right, like if we have to be out here for an hour longer every day or two hours longer then yeah, we just, we won't sleep. Um, and so like towards the end of it, like, I mean, I pulled, two all-nighters in the final four days and um, had one night of like maybe three hours and one night of like four hours and the final like hundred hours of this thing. So um, like it really, I mean, it really did come down to just not sleeping. Did you know that you were capable of that beforehand or did you have any sense that you were just good in sleep deprivation situations before this? Um, I knew that as pretty good with without a lot of sleep um but not anything to like this extent where you know the most i think i slept in those three weeks was probably six hours um was the longest nap basically that i had um but there are a lot of four to five hour day nights of sleep and like it just kind of became that new normal where all of a sudden it's like well this feels fine like it doesn't feel too bad and then when you start only getting like two or three hours it's like well, this doesn't feel great, but you know, it's, it's not awful. Um, and then towards the end, it's just like, I don't need sleep. Like we are close enough to this thing that I just don't need sleep. And I mean, I remember saying with like 160 miles to go and like 44 hours left on the clock, I'm just like, we're not going to sleep until we get to the finish of this. And everyone's like, Mm, like you're talking almost two days now after you've already been out here for 19. And I'm like, doesn't matter. We're not sleeping. But um, I did take a 20-minute coffee nap uh, with 60 miles to go. But it sounds like you had more confidence in your crew. Oh, yeah. Like, they uh, <laughs> they, they, uh, they like sleep, um, and they were also all, like, not getting much sleep over the final week of this thing. So, like, they were exhausted. I was exhausted. But, like, I just would not stop. And so I just remember some of these overnight, like, road sections where – like we'd have the crew van driving behind me as I'm running down the road and they're like, yeah, you know, it's super fun to be going like six miles an hour down a country road somewhere. Like, I'm like, it is what it is. Like, this is the fastest I can move right now. <laughs> so, so like there'd be hours of that though, that they're just sitting in the van driving behind me. Like, here we go. Um, but that's so brutal, man. Well, God bless your crew, but I mean, it's like I, this is what I've always come down to with athletes is, is like you got to be the boss. Like your crew can pull you out of holes every once in a while, and that's nice and good, and you might get lucky that they help out here and there. But at the end of the day, you got to be responsible for you. And sometimes even despite people's other people's kind of best intentions that want to help out, you still got to be the one that's making the call, you know? Yeah. And like, especially with the ankle thing that happened pretty early on, like the ankle is day five. I didn't tell my crew about it until day seven, um, <laughs> just because I didn't want to give them one more thing to worry about. But yet they're just like on day six, they're like, you're just moving a little bit slower than normal. I'm like, it's totally fine. Then on day seven, they're like, what is actually going on? Like, you are not fine. <laughs> like, what's that? I'm like, oh, I rolled my ankle on day five, but it's it's OK. That's so like, classic. That's so classic. Don't worry about me. I'll be OK. <laughs> and they're like it's not fine though and they're like you can't even like put pressure on it right now and i'm like i can put pressure on it i just don't want to <laughs> i don't think people understand like this was not just a normal ankle roll that you kind of like walk off like your ankle was foobard yeah like i like i even had moments where early on i just told i told the crew i'm like hey guys like i'm not able to cover the amount of miles i need to cover right now so um we we're just going to have to go into like basically emergency mode here and i'm like we have 22 hours a day that i can be out here covering distance i can still sleep for an hour eat for an hour and we'll just make this work until we get back on record pace and they're like you really don't want to do that right now and i'm like 
you're right. I don't want to do that right now, but we're going to go to about 18 hours. So like I had some pretty big days in there and still was able to get some sleep. Um, and then had one day 11, I think was the short day, like 26 miles or something like that. But I saw a sports chiropractor and he's able to just, he did some laser treatment on it. He did some of the Graston technique where, you know, they're doing the scraping and all that. And that just hurts so bad, but it got it to the point where I actually had range of motion back in my ankle. Um, Cause like I was finally at a point where I didn't even have range of motion in my ankle. So um, walking on flat ground just hurt. Walking downhill was almost impossible without trekking poles, but I could still at least hike uphill decent. Um, and so like, it was just one of those things where they're like, is this a high ankle sprain? Like, do you actually have something broken? Like a bunch of other questions just came up and I was like, I don't know, but we don't have time to stop. Did the, did the improvement in the ankle really unfold like that? Cause when I've, I watched the outside TV documentary and a lot of people listening will have watched it as well. And it, I mean, it seems like quasi miraculous that one day. And I, I actually knew how, like, I don't think they portrayed portrayed how bad your ankle was to the extent that it actually was. It was way worse off than what somebody who's watching it to to would be led to believe. And that's just because we've talked about it afterwards. But it was way worse. And then all of a sudden, like, it seemed like a, like a switch got flipped and it was way better. Did it, like, really unfold like that from, like, one one day to the next where it got almost miraculously better? Yeah, like it was absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Um, because like that previous day, I think I had re- I think I had covered maybe like sixty miles that previous day, but it took me like nineteen hours or something like that. And it was mostly road or like limestone trail. And so because of that, it was it was like okay, I'm still able to cover this mileage, but my ankle still really hurts. It's swollen. Like things are just not great. I went to bed at like 2 a.m. and then woke up at 6.30 and the camera crew's in the room and like, I don't want to get out of bed. Like, I'm just like, this is going to hurt. Like, I know how this goes. And like, I just, I was like, fine, whatever. Like, we finally have to get up and we need to start. And I put my feet on the ground and like my ankle just didn't hurt. And I was like, I, (laughs) I had no idea how to explain it. And like, I was shocked because I was just expecting to be in pain, like from that first step in the morning until I go to sleep that night. And just, it was, it just, it didn't hurt. I was like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And so like, I didn't know the camera crew was going to be there when I woke up that morning. Like they had texted Tom overnight and they came for when I was waking up and like, just, there's nothing that should say that it should have felt better that day. And it just, it did. And so it's funny because Pete Kostelnik, um, he sent like, when he heard that I hurt my ankle or whatever, um, he sent me a message on Instagram. He's like, just keep moving forward. It will fix itself. And I was like, mm, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know that I believe <laughs> all of this stuff. This. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I, I don't know that I believe all this stuff, but I'm like, you know, the dude has a lot more experience with multi-day stuff than I do. So if Pete says, keep moving forward, I guess I'll keep moving forward. And sure enough, like one day it just fixed itself. It's so I've, so you're not the first person that I've seen have that happen to in a multi-day thing. It's weird. It's weird. It's stuff that in like normal day-to-day life, you'd be like, yeah, you need to take like three weeks off. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of like that type of injury. Like you're taking two, three weeks off, not running 471 miles in a week <laughs> afterwards. It's just like, it's so absurd. And I, I mean, I kind of echo Pete's advice where you just never know what's going to happen. You just got to keep kind of rolling the dice until you come up snake eyes and it's clear that you can't go on any further. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. So it's all said and done. Like you've had a good amount of time to like process this now and actually recover. And you and I have probably been messaging back and forth more about the hilarious recovery stories than anything else. We won't get into that. But like as an athlete, having gone through this experience and then also another experience where you kind of like, you know, you got out of your comfort zone to a significant extent, not just a little bit, a significant extent. What do you take away from that that you're going to use in future years? 
Yeah. Um, one of the big things that I kind of learned through this is just, you know, taking things 10 seconds at a time. Um, and I've said that like on a million podcasts now, but like, honestly, on the days where my ankle is just hurting so bad, along with both of my shins were just on fire. Um, it got to the point where it's like, okay, if I'm limping on the right side and I'm limping on the left side, then I guess I can still limp in a straight line and move forward. But like every step I took was just hurting so bad all day for a few of those days. So I was just like, I'm going to count to 10. Like that is the only thing I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on counting to 10 over and over and over. And that will get me through the day. And like, there are days where I honestly just count to 10 for like six hours at a time and just be like, well, here we go. Just 10 more steps. Here we go. Um, and it sounds kind of sick and like, like there's something (laughs) wrong with me or something, but it's like, that's what you have to do. Like when you're in a situation like that and you know, you still have 600 miles to go and you only have, you know, 11 days or 10 days or however many it is. It's like, all right, like 10 seconds at a time. That is the only way to attack that. Um, so I guess the biggest thing now is I actually feel like I can race a hundred miles. Um, because before I've always thought of hundred miles as being like a fun event in the woods or in the mountains, you know, and, um, like I've, I've raced them well, but I don't know that I've had any like great races, uh, when it comes to the hundred mile distance. Um, but now I'm really excited for that just because, uh, especially over the final 160, not 160 hours, 160 miles, uh, to be able to cover that in 38 hours on the final days of this. Like, I think that's what gave me the most confidence of like, if you can do that, then you can go out and you can race a really hard hundred miler and still do it well. Yeah. You know, for the longest time, and I think this is still a little bit prevalent, not only with elite athletes, but with, um, just a, a lot of everyday athletes, they tend to treat the hundred mile distance as like this defensive proposition where they're just constantly playing defense and they're constantly trying to be overly conservative and things like that. And I think when you're fit enough and you have the experience, like you've had like these, these experiences to accelerate the learning curve to a large extent, right? <laughs> when you're fit enough and you have the experience you can actually go into a hundred mile race and say, okay, I'm going to race this. This is not that long. Like Carl, Carl Meltzer would always say a hundred miles is not that long. The reason he can say that is because he's done so many of them. Yeah, absolutely. And you did a hundred miles. I don't think this, this shouldn't get lost. You did a hundred miles in under 24 hours on the sec- the last day or the second to last day. Second to last day. Yeah. God dang. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was the start of the push. And I was like, if I can cover 100 miles in 24 hours, then we will get the record. If I can't, then the record just might not be happening. Um, And so, like, I think I covered 103 miles in 24 hours or something like that. Um, And then was able to finally see my crew at mile like 105. So I'd been seeing them the whole time, but I sent them ahead so they could sleep because I was on a flat section. And I was like, I'll have breakfast after 105 miles of running and then I'll take a short little 20 minute nap and we're going to go again. And so, yeah. That's so awesome, man. So what's happened to you like after this? Cause you've had like these two, I kind of want to talk about your professional career for just a little bit. Cause you've had these yeah. two kind of big pieces of exposure, like for you personally with eco challenge, which got ele- ele- elevated certainly in this ice age trail, which, which also has gotten a lot of, a lot of attention. What's like, what's changed or what's different for you personally after having both of those kind of come out in quick succession? Um, oh boy, just a lot of media stuff, uh, because so many people are just like, they'll hear about the final four days of the race or the final, uh, like, basically the final 160 mile push and all that. And they're just fascinated by that. And they want to hear more like what actually gets you to go out and do something like that. Or like, how do you come up with ideas like this when everyone else is not being as active during quarantine and COVID. And um, so that's been nice, but like there've been a lot of brands that have been reaching out with different like partnership and opportunities and stuff like that. Um, Just it's also just given me a very large platform to be able to go out and 
tell people about things I enjoy and like causes I like and uh, want to support. And, and so like, that's been really cool. Um, especially that companies now are, uh, more into like diversity in the outdoors, um, because this is a great way to do it. And by doing something like an eco challenge and then a longer FKT like this, it's not just saying like diversity in trail and ultra running. We're saying diversity in outdoors and adventure sports. Um, so that's been really cool that uh, brands are noticing that and people are actually interested in it. Man, well, if we're up to me, the world needs more Corys. Like we need, we need more of that across the entire space. And you hit the nail on the head, not just trail running, but the entire outdoor space. I quite frankly, I asked that question because I think it's awesome. Totally biased host question from my perspective, (laughs) but dude, you like you, you, you carry that burden and you carry that message really well. So I hope, I, I really, really do hope that it continues that this is just the start of it. And those doors continue to open for you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm I'm very optimistic about how things are going. So, um, so yeah, dude, that's a perfect pin to put in it right there. You're optimistic on the way things are going. We, nobody heard this on the front side of the podcast, but we were both complaining about how much snow there is in my backyard in September and the storms rolling through Ottawa. If we can leave it with some optimism, let's do it right there, my friend, Corey. I'll give you the last word, man. You you've kind of like taken up a mantle on from a lot of different fronts here. What do you want to like leave the listeners with a message that you can kind of impart on them? Yeah. Um, I think I said it at the end of, I don't even remember if it was the, the ice age trail FKT video or what, but I'm like, you know, just treat people how you want to be treated and be proactive, like check on your LGBTQ plus friends, check on your friends of color and, you know, invite somebody out to go try something new, like go explore. Um, And if we do that, I think the world will be a great place. Love it, man. All right, dude. Appreciate your time, Corey. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. And there you have it. There you go. Appreciate Corey for coming on the podcast today. And I'm very grateful that I get to help guide him in his athletic endeavors as his coach. He's just such a great person to work with. If you are not doing so already, give Corey a follow on Instagram or on Twitter. It will be well worth your time. I guarantee it. The links to both of those are in the show notes. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening today. If you have any feedback, go on over to Apple Podcasts. Give this podcast a five-star rating or review, or you can just hit me up on social very appreciative of all the feedback that I get. As always, we'll see everybody out on the trails.